With the latest round of stage four lockdowns in Melbourne, many workers have suddenly had to deal with children at home again. But how are you meant to get any work done when there's a toddler hanging off a ceiling fan and little Timmy has decided to finger paint the walls? There's no better time to be discussing Grattan's latest report, Cheaper Childcare, a practical plan to boost female workforce participation. I'm Kat Clay, Head of Digital Communications, and we've got a bumper podcast for you today with the three authors of this report, Grattan's CEO, Danielle Wood, fellow Kate Griffiths, and Senior Associate, Owen Emsley. Welcome all. Thanks, Thanks Kat. Kat. Thanks. So, Danny, you've experienced this firsthand, producing a report on childcare while your little one has been at home. How's it going? Uh, yeah, don't know if it's the right time to ask me this. It is. Uh, look, it's it's day one of the sort of official childcare closures. Um, I am recording this from my closet because it's the only place I'm sure I will not be interrupted. Um, and you know, I am grappling about with how my partner and I are going to match up essentially another 40 hours a week when our child would normally be in care um, while both of us are working full time. And, you know, we are far from alone in this battle. There are 170,000 children under five that are accessing early learning and care services in Victoria. Uh, on average, they're there for 25 hours a week. Most of them can't go under stage four restrictions. So that means there are literally tens of thousands of parents out there trying to work out how they're going to find these extra hours in their day. Um, so there has probably never been a better time to release a report on the importance of childcare to workforce participation. Um, this is, you know, certainly I think a stark reminder of just how important these services are to allow people to work um, while ensuring, obviously, that their their children are in good hands. That's right. And in Australia, I mean, heterosexual couples with children are often considered 1.5 earners where a man works full-time and the woman works part-time. What is stopping women with children from working more? It's, it's interesting. The predominance of the, the 1.5 earner model um, in Australia was really one of the big things that surprised me when we started looking at this data. So even though Australia has very high rates of female workforce participation by international standards, we also have some of the highest rates of part-time work. And certainly amongst couples with young children, the, the 1.5 earner model is the predominant model. Um, so obviously one answer for why is, is choice, um, but choices don't occur in a vacuum. And I think the fact that different countries have such different patterns really suggests this isn't preordained. So we went through this process of trying to work out what the barriers might be. Um, the first one that came out very clearly was the low financial returns to work for second earners, uh, still generally women, uh, particularly because of high out-of-pocket childcare costs. Uh, we certainly see in surveys um, for you know asked for families that say that childcare is a barrier to them working more. Um, cost comes out as the major factor. Uh, availability of childcare. Um, less of a universal issue, but certainly in pockets, it can be a concern in, in particularly in some inner city areas and particularly for younger children, the under twos. Um, and then finally, there's, there's a cultural piece, I think. It's about, you know, the way in which couples share paid and unpaid work and some of the social norms that go along with that. Um, so Australia has some of the most gendered <laughs> patterns of, of unpaid and paid work um, in, in the developed world. And, you know, I think it is an interesting question about how those norms develop. Uh, I think, you know, we're all social creatures. We look around and see the choices that our family are making or our friends are making. Um, and, and often, you know, those seem like the natural choices, um, you know, the ones that you sort of make without thinking about because you don't have to explain yourself. 
Um, so I think there is interesting questions, though, about the role that government policies and employer attitudes play in reinforcing those types of norms. And, you know, some of the things that we're focusing on this report is how you might go about disrupting them, um, given the ample evidence that they're not really serving either mums or dads well. I really like that point you make, Danny, because it's it's about that idea that we do have personal choice and it, it's certainly, you know, women do have the choice to be uh, part-time carers or, or full-time um, mums, but it's also about opening up those choices as well. And if there's policies that are turning women away from working because they're making it unaffordable, um, then it's certainly something we need to look at. We'll dig into all of those points that Danny has made already And so that brings me to Owen. Um, Something in the report you talk about a lot is the workforce disincentive rate. And I'm wondering if you could explain to us what that is and how it impacts this choice for women to work. Absolutely. Now, the workforce disincentive rate relates to someone making a decision to work an extra day or not. And the calculation is the proportion of the extra income that's earned that is lost through income tax loss of benefits, and the extra cost of childcare from working an extra day. Uh, And why does it particularly affect women's choices? Well, in a lot of families, you'll have a man working full-time and it'll be the woman that's often making the choice about how many hours or how many days to work. And the workforce disincentive rate basically is part of the calculation that says, is this going to be worth it, working the extra day? Can you give us an idea of how much of a disincentive that is to women to work? Like, I, I mean, is it, a, is it a few dollars? Is it how much money are people losing out on um, by working those extra days and putting their children in childcare? Well, we've looked at families with two children in childcare and what we find is on the fourth and fifth day, the workforce disincentive rates are between about 65 and 120%. So that is... At the very least, they're losing about 65% of what they earn. And in the worst case, they're losing everything, working for nothing or even paying for the, for the privilege of working. So, for example, when we looked at a family where the main earner earns $60,000 working full-time and the second earner uh, is working part-time, working three days a week for a similar hourly rate, if, uh, if she chooses to work a fourth day, she'll be working for about $2 an hour. And if she chooses to work a fifth day, she'll be working for nothing. So it's no wonder that people are choosing not to work because nobody wants to work for nothing. I mean, it, it seems it seems almost madness to kind of work that extra day and, and not see anything out of it. I mean, it sounds like it's disadvantaging a lot of uh, women with children but I'd like to know who benefits the least from this existing setup. Well, as you said, it's mostly families with young children. And a big part of that is because of the cost of childcare is really significant. There's also a family tax benefit is a part of that as well. From working extra, uh, many families will lose some of their family tax benefit, but it's the, the biggest part is the childcare cost. So it's especially families that have more than one child in care. and the it's really high right across the income distribution. So even for high earners, the steep taper on the childcare subsidy means that the extra childcare cost really eats into earnings when you work an extra day. 
And that leads me into a really good question, which is that how do we make childcare more affordable? Well, our plan involves working with the childcare subsidy that is currently in existence. The, our plan is to increase the base rate of the childcare subsidy from 85% to 95% and have a flatter taper so that the amount of subsidy that you get comes down less quickly with additional income. That'll leave all families who are using childcare better off. We'll have, for about 60% of families, they'll be paying less than $20 a day per child, and it will decrease a lot of the really high workforce disincentives because the cost of childcare will be cheaper, and because it won't uh, go up as much with additional income, we won't see the really high impact of the extra days childcare on the the disincentives to work, the financial disincentives. So this scheme you're proposing, has something similar been implemented anywhere else in the world? And, and what happened? In Quebec in 1997, they implemented a program with universal access to very cheap childcare. It was about $5 a day. Um, it's still in place now. It's up to about eight dollars a day. And what they found was that labour force participation among mothers of young children in Quebec rose by sixteen percentage points over a twenty-year period, from sixty-four percent to eighty percent. And by comparison, across the rest of Canada, it only uh, labour force participation among mothers of young children only went up by about four percentage points. So. Clearly, there was a much bigger impact, and that was um, that was driven by that cheaper childcare scheme. And the other thing that they found was that the labour force participation of other women, so women without young children, also rose by five percentage points, while it was flat in other provinces of Canada. So that indicates that allowing women to maintain some attachment to work in those early years of child raising when the children are young means they're more likely to keep working when the children get a little older. That's what that indicates. Um, and another example of a scheme was in Washington, D.C. In 2009, they brought in two years of free full-day preschool for uh, I think it was three- and four-year-olds. So the goal of that policy was around school readiness for the children, but a sort of Side, uh, side effect of that was that maternal labour force participation increased by about 12 percentage points. So in both cases, the impact's clear, it's big, it's, as they say in the classics, it's fast-acting and it's long-lasting. What do more working mothers mean for us? Uh, increasing the labour force participation of, of mothers is one of the biggest economic levers that we have. It's one of the bigger untapped um, potential sources of economic uplift. So this is a big economic reform. So we estimate from the policy that we're proposing through increasing the hours worked by mothers of young children by about 13%, we'll see an increase of about $11 billion in GDP every year. And a really important point about the $11 billion that Owen just raised is that 
that is the benefit in the long term from getting more women participating in the workforce. And we know we have a very, very talented pool of women to tap into. So this is a major long-term economic reform. But it's also a really important short-term response to COVID in a world where we know a lot of people have lost jobs and hours, allowing them to access cheaper childcare, keep their place in childcare is going to allow them to, to pick up jobs and work as it becomes available. So this is important for keeping people connected to the workforce in the short term. And it also puts money in the hands of young families that we know is likely to spend it. So this is both a long-term and a short-term economic win. That's huge. And I think we'll we'll probably look at that a little bit later in the podcast, but I certainly um, it's really important to see the link between what we can do for working mothers has a huge impact on the Australian economy. So, Danny, there's been a number of people calling for the free childcare package that was introduced between April and July to be made permanent. Why shouldn't we do this? It would be really a, a bold change to, to go for universal childcare, and there are some good arguments to recommend it. Um, you know, first of all, we know that early learning and care is incredibly important for, for children's development. There's, you know, excellent data on how important it is to be in one of those learning rich environments for, for future development. And that's always been, you know, a, a key argument for why government should be in there, you know, heavily supporting the sector. Um, the challenge has always been that it's a sort of a package of services. Um, so, you know, we certainly put our children in care and hope that they will receive that um, you know, excellent learning environment. Uh, but it's also there to, to enable parents to be able to go and, and work. Um, so a universal scheme is expensive, unsurprisingly, uh, by providing free or almost free childcare to everyone. Um, you are looking, you know, probably upwards of, of $12 billion a year on top of the cost of the existing scheme. And because we would be moving from a model where the scheme is targeted based on someone's income, um, inevitably you'll get some political pushback because the biggest um, increase in, in subsidy will be going to the, the highest income earners that, that currently pay less than low income earners. So it is politically challenging, um, but certainly, you know, I could see that if you wanted to put out a visionary policy, this idea of universal childcare could be fairly compelling. Um, but it, it's not something you could do overnight. Um, you know, it would take the sector a while to adjust. You'd expect under a universal policy, um, you'd need more supply, both in terms of childcare centres and in terms of childcare workers. So we would argue that, you know, our policy of increasing the childcare subsidy that Owen has outlined, you know, would be a useful stepping stone to universal childcare, or it's a very important change in its own right. I want to turn a little bit more to um, something that Danny mentioned previously, which is this discussion around women's unpaid work. And it's a discussion that has been in the media for a few years now, but it's also an area that gets quite fraught with personal emotions and defensiveness. I mean, you know, you don't you want to think that you're helping out around the house, and it sounds like a criticism to potentially male partners that um, they're not doing enough household work. So it's it's quite valuable to take a step back and look at the data around unpaid labour and to say, well, well, what are the, the facts and what are the statistics around this area? So, Kate, can you talk us through some of the research in this area? Sure. Yeah. So the reason we talk about the unpaid workload is that how big the unpaid workload is 
is what's limiting your choices about paid work um, and particularly for women because women in Australia do more unpaid work and less paid work relative to men than in most other countries. So as Danny said earlier, it's more gendered here and it's more gendered than the US, than the UK, than New Zealand, than Canada, most of those sorts of countries that we usually compare ourselves with. And to put some sort of specific numbers around it, on average, every day, Australian women are doing 2.3 more hours of unpaid work than men. And that was even before COVID. So we know that that unpaid burden has gone up during the COVID period. Um, so it's not really any coincidence that Australian women are also doing 2.2 fewer hours of paid work. Uh, they, they're effectively substitutable. And there's only that's just because there's only so many hours in the day. The really interesting gap that, that we've noticed in our research is that um, this this big gap between men and women in paid and unpaid work opens up around the time when heterosexual couples have kids. Initially, soon after the birth of the child, the work patterns of the woman in particular change dramatically and they barely change for the father. And the really interesting part about that is that it endures. So it's not something that just happens around the birth of the child and then they go um, back to what it was before or to something new in a couple of years' time. No, even a decade after having a child, the average woman is doing more caring and twice as much household work as her partner. And if you haven't had a look at our report yet, um, that graph in the report is one of the most telling uh, charts that I think you'll see on this particular topic. So I urge you to take a look at that. But it kind of leads me to a question is that why should this be a matter for governments? Isn't this something that um, couples should discuss and in their own personal lives. So you're absolutely right that this is all about family choice. Uh, but I guess the key point here is that men's and women's decisions about paid and unpaid work uh, and how much they choose to do are affected by economic, social and cultural influences. Um, you know, people should choose what suits them best, of course, but those preferences are often constrained by social norms, by policy settings, and the choices available are more limited than what they should be. So when uh, for example, parental leave is available to the birth mother, that makes the choice fairly explicit as to who is going to take it. And it's those sorts of um, constraints that we're really interested in in this report, looking at how to reduce some of those barriers to give families more choice about how they want to share employment and caring. When we look at just the stats on, um, on what women want, for example, about a quarter of women with young children say that they'd prefer to work more paid hours but they're facing a whole range of different barriers in doing so. Because this report has so many amazing suggestions in it and how we can um, reform parental leave and childcare in Australia, um, one of the things that you talk about is that um, there's a statement in the report that says that parental leave can lock in the mother as the main carer. And I want to know how we can make parental leave more equitable and how we unlock women from the expectations of this single carer parental leave. Sure. Yeah. So one of the early decisions for people starting a family is about parental leave, like who takes it, how long do you take it for? And that decision is actually one of these choices that's made in, in a situation that's quite constrained by government and employer parental leave schemes by the design of those sorts of policies. So in, in Australia, women overwhelmingly take the government funded parental leave. It's 99.5% of the recipients are, are women. And that's because the scheme is quite specifically targeted to the birth mother. It makes it very difficult to share the leave and it makes it difficult to transfer it to the father even where the woman is a family breadwinner. So it's kind of, it's a 
scheme designed for women. There is a separate scheme designed for men na- named Dad and Partner Pay, so, so it's very clearly for the men. It's two weeks and it's at minimum wage like the, the, the main scheme for women is too. And only about half of employers are actually offering parental leave at all. So this government scheme for both women and men is so important. Um, there's actually f- even fewer employers who offer a scheme for men at all. So that just shows how important it's the father is considered to be in those early few weeks. Um, so the offering that's available through the government system for fathers is very limited. As I said, only two weeks. And typically, the average father actually takes even less than that, only about eight days around the birth. So the mother pretty quickly becomes the primary carer. Uh, she's taking the leave. She gets to know, you know, all of the the home routines, how to change the nappies, what the kid likes to eat, when nap time is, all of those things. So that that is part of the sort of lock-in um, that parental leave can, can affect parenting well beyond the period of leave itself. Um, and... I guess when when um, she looks to return to paid work, uh, and and sh- and she often does, uh, women who take parental leave are more likely to return to paid work. Um, she invariably returns part time though, or not at all uh, in some cases, and that's usually where there isn't part time work available, or um, there, the workplace can't offer some flexibility. So these uh, you know these patterns set up by the, those first few um, weeks or years. Um, after the child's born, can endure long-term. That can affect their employment for many decades afterwards. They may be part-time for the rest of their career. So unlocking women from these expectations is, when we talk about that, we're talking about helping families to make choices themselves about how they want to share caring responsibilities and what choices they want to make in terms of parental leave, like how much each parent wants to take and um, how they can both return to work if they want to. Big factor here is about making parental leave and flexible work more available to fathers. And that's because it's the, really the missing component of the offering at the moment. So we would recommend more government-funded parental leave for fathers. Um, that's a dedicated component for fathers um, or for partners, I should say. Um, and we do see that countries with that sort of dedicated parental leave for fathers and partners um, have more sharing of unpaid work between the parents so this can happen even several years after the birth of the child. There's a more equal division of household labour, so childcare, but also the housework, because the person at home who develops those habits early on is, is both of them. And um, that sets up new habits for life for the family and can enable the, the woman in the family to do more paid work. And this is a perfect example of where uh, a big picture policy change can actually enable a cultural shift, So, which is why this report is so important and, and such an interesting read um, because it has the capacity to change so many women's lives. Danny, COVID-19 has upended a lot of households in terms of um, working from home, uh, looking after children at home and changed the way that many of us live. And Kate touched on the idea of flexible work often being the mother's domain, but I'm wondering how the transformation to remote working will affect these household roles and especially workforce participation in future. Yeah, it's been a really interesting time, I think, for a lot of these patterns that we've been talking about. And and early on, there was a real debate about, you know, whether we would see more equal sharing of unpaid work because it'd be more visible when everyone's in, you know, at home and and can see what's going on or whether it would reinforce um, gendered norms. And I I think actually the answer is probably a combination of the two. Um, So we see that that both men and women have been doing more unpaid work 
during COVID, uh, but the majority is being done by by women and particularly a lot of the issues around the mental load of work are really coming out in survey data. Um, the longer-term question about flexible work, um, what COVID has shown us is that for a lot of jobs, certainly not all, but for a lot of particularly sort of professional and white-collar jobs, people can work from home. <laughs> Employers have always been sceptical about, you know, whether people would be able to perform at home. And I think increasingly they are seeing that it is possible and, you know, we have technologies that enable us to do that. Um, what that might mean going forward as we, we get back more to a normal world, I suspect certainly from talking to businesses and others, is that there will be a broader acceptance of flexible working arrangements. Um, so people may choose to work, um, you know, some days in the office, some days at home. Um, so that does provide, I think, some scope for, for greater sharing of these arrangements. You know, if people are working from home a certain number of days a week, you share the school pickups, you know, someone cooks, you share who cooks dinner, those sort of issues. Um, but, you know, the real difference to date in the, the take up of flexible work has been around part-time work. Um, that has really been the women's domain. And I'm not convinced, actually, that this this shock is going to meaningfully change that. That is really going to change um, with, I think, some policy signals and, um, you know, it requires a more fundamental shake-up, I think, of those gender norms rather than just the working from home shift. So I'm going to return to you, Kate. So while making childcare more affordable is a huge way to incentivise women to work, what are some of the other policies you've suggested to support workforce participation? So we do have a couple of other um, recommendations. I suppose the the headline recommendation of, of making childcare cheaper um, is is the really big one. It's a major economic reform, as Owen was explaining before. It's got a really big potential to um, support the COVID recovery, to boost the economy in the long term through workforce participation. But we also we don't want to ignore the the really important issues around the distribution of unpaid work and how policies can kind of constrain the choices of families. So we recommend a, a sort of smaller but important step forward on parental leave to enable families to make different choices early on that might help them set up different habits for life. Um, and our recommendation there is that the government parental leave scheme be expanded to include six weeks of use it or lose it leave for each parent. And that would be paid at minimum wage as per the current scheme, but then there would be 12 weeks that they could share between them, which essentially means that women under the current scheme can access 18 weeks of parental leave. Under our proposal, they would be able to do the same. But the big difference here is that men would have access, so fathers, partners um, would have access to six weeks themselves, um, and then they could potentially access more than that too if they choose to share it that way. And then uh, for single parents, obviously, who are particularly vulnerable, um, they should be able to access the full 24 weeks. So it'd be a big boost for fathers and partners. It would be a big boost for single parents. Um, and actually, the policy in the scheme of things um, would be relatively cheap. <laughs> I say that uh, carefully. Uh, so it's about $600 million a year if you got the uptake from fathers that we currently see from mothers. And if we did get that level of uptake, I think that that would be a real sign of social change. Um, and if we didn't get that level of uptake, then we're perhaps not talking about quite such a costly scheme. But really what this does is it would help fathers and partners to spend more time with their children in that critical first year of the child's life. I mean, $600 billion, that's not that much, right? 
It's about a 25% increase on the current investment in parental leave. Um, and uh, in the scheme of the recommendations we make, the, the big one we're making is about making childcare cheaper. I mean, that's, that's a $5 billion a year proposal, um, an additional investment in childcare but it does have that economic dividend too um, that's much more immediate than the, the parental leave benefits, which we might expect to see in the longer term. And I want to ask you, Kate, in an ideal world, if these changes are implemented, what are the outcomes we can see for mothers? So making childcare cheaper would make it financially viable for women who want to do more paid work to do so. That's huge. That can be the difference between you know building your career after you have a child and losing it. But it also boosts lifetime earnings for women, for a typical mother, by about $150,000, we estimate, which really, really matters over the scheme of things, particularly um, in families where the marriage breaks down, because it's the woman who ends up more financially vulnerable. And essentially, the, the sort of supporting recommendations that we've made around parental leave, particularly, give families more choice in how they choose to share caring and employment, in what they um, choose to, in how they choose to spend their work and life and um, balancing those things. So I think all of those things are, are big for well-being um, and, you know, the value of giving fathers more time with their kids, I, I don't know, you can put a price on that. That's exactly right, Kate. You can't put a price on that time you have with family. I'd like to just say thank you, Danny, Kate, Owen, for your wonderful reflections on how we can reform childcare in Australia. And if you haven't read the report already or would like to have a look, it's available for free on our website at grattan.edu.au, right there on the home page. I'd like to thank you for listening today. If you'd like to keep up with the conversation, please follow us on Twitter at Grattan Inst or on any of our social media channels, Grattan Institute. I'd also like to say while I have you here, Grattan Institute is a nonprofit organisation and we rely on donations from people like you, our wonderful listeners. If you have valued our podcast this year or any of our reports, we'd really appreciate it if you go to grattan.edu.au forward slash donate. Thank you so much for listening. Please take care, especially if you are in stage four lockdowns right now. Uh, wash your hands, wear a mask and take care. Thank you.